The following is rated not safe for work. It contains strong language, adult situations, and lots and lots of spoilers. Discretion is advised. In the criminal justice system, cinematic-based offenses are considered especially heinous. The dedicated attorneys who investigate these villainous films are members of an elite squad known as the Reels of Justice. These are their stories. Order, please, order. The Reels of Justice is now in session. Judge Star Baby Ryan Luis Rodriguez presiding. <laughs> yeah, nice for the Honorable <laughs> Judge Rodriguez. I don't know why these nicknames are always so insulting, but whatever. Be seated. Welcome to the Reels of Justice. Today we are hearing the case of The People vs. 2010, The Year We Make Contact, a 1984 sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, about a team of American and Russian astronauts sent to investigate the failed mission of the Discovery at the hands of its HAL 9000 computer. For those of you unfamiliar with our court proceedings, we are here to determine if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. As always, in this courtroom, films are to be considered excellent until proven awful, and the burden of proof lies upon the prosecution to prove beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt that this film is guilty. Mr. Dylan J. Slender, you're representing the prosecution. You may present your opening statement. Thank you, Your Honor. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I float before you in a futuristic hover pack. I'm sure you can hear it right now. To prove to you... I hear 2010... it. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Mr. Spacely. <laughs> 2010. Da, da, year... da, da. Okay, it's settled down. Oh, man, I love the Jetsons. All right, 2010, the year we made contact is not just a bad movie, but a disaster on the level of the BP oil spill. This film is a sequel to the acclaimed 2001 A Space Odyssey, and as such, it has to answer for its lack of originality, poor execution, and scientific inaccuracies. First, I will prove to you that 2010 contains a number of scientific inaccuracies that detract from the film's credibility, from the depiction of Jupiter's gravity and orbits, to the portrayal of Jupiter's atmosphere and moons, they're about as accurate as the predictions for the World Cup of 2010. <laughs> Second, I will demonstrate to you that 2010 fails to live up to the standards set by the predecessor, 2001, A Space Odyssey. It ignores several of the main themes, and it just simply doesn't make you think. It is like comparing Milton to a game of Angry Birds. And finally, I will prove to you that 2010 is bad on its own merits. With a poorly written and predictable plot, wooden dialogue, and unconvincing performances, it is like watching a really bad episode of Jersey Shore, but in space. So I urge you to consider all the evidence I will present and find that 2010, the year we made contact, is indeed a bad movie. A movie that's about as successful as the launch of the Apple iPhone 4. The joke was those were all things that happened in 2010. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Slender. Even I Milton? did not know that 2010 had a spray tan. That's interesting <laughs> to know. Appearing on behalf of the defense is Mr. Robin Warder. Please present your opening statement. Well, I decided to pick 2010 for this episode because uh, I was thinking the other day about how I once had a conversation about controversial and unpopular film opinions, and one that I said that raised a lot of eyebrows is when I said, I actually prefer 2010, the year we make contact, to 2001, A Space Odyssey, which is a pretty mm. shocking uh, opinion, and I think there's some people out there who just automatically think that 2010 is bad because they think 2001 is a masterpiece and that the idea of making a sequel to it is pure sacrilege. But when I was a kid, I actually watched 2010 first. I saw it at a friend's house, really enjoyed it. Then I found out it was a sequel to something, watched 2001, and thought it was the most boring thing I had ever seen. <laughs> then as an adult, I tried to revisit it, give it another chance, but I still thought it was boring. But I watched 2010, and I still think it really holds up. It's a really solid standalone sci-fi film, and I think that a lot of people just don't give it a chance because uh, they write off the possibility of making a sequel to one of the most acclaimed science fiction films of all time. Thank you, Mr. Warder. Mr. Slender, you may proceed with your first exhibit. Thank you, Your Honor. I would like to start off with the scientific uh, inaccuracies that we see in this film. 
because one of the reasons 2001 was so beloved in the work of Arthur C. Clarke is so beloved is because of the attention to detail. So if we start just right with one thing right out the gate, uh, gravity. The movie depicts the Discovery 1 spacecraft approaching Jupiter and then orbiting it and the moons in a way that's actually just not physically possible because of the mass that Jupiter has. The stronger gravitational pull would not allow the Discovery the Discovery 1 to orbit the planet in such a way. It most certainly would actually just end up cr- like crashing into the planet getting sucked in or into one of the moons. It wouldn't be able to keep that kind of middle distance. And we also see in the movie that Jap- uh, Jupiter, Jupiter, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that Freudian Jup- slip there. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> whoa, easy there. Uh, Jupiter's uh, atmosphere is shown to be thick and turbulent as the ship is going through it, which is actually not the case because Jupiter's atmosphere is actually more complex than that, and it wouldn't even be you wouldn't even be able to navigate it. Uh, at all, because the clouds in it are actually composed of, according to my notes here, ammonia, hydrogen, and helium, and the pressure and temperature would increase significantly during that scene where we see the uh, ship bouncing across the atmosphere. Also, Mr. Warger, how about that science? Well, I've just got one more. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I just got one more point on the uh, science. Please proceed. It has to do uh, with the ending. This is the most important thing. Jupiter is not massive enough to be turned into a miniature star. If that were to happen, that would be known as the phenomenon as Jupiter becoming a miniature star. It's just not possible. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Jupiter is a gas giant. It does not have the mass to trigger the nuclear reactions that would be necessary to become a star. So this right here, the end of the movie, is the biggest violation of the laws of physics and just really goes to show that it had a lack of scientific accuracy and attention to detail that 2001 was able to have. So that's my point about the scientific inaccuracies. If you want to kick it over to Robin. <laughs> Mr. Warger, defend the science of this film. Well, I did really badly in science in school, so I'm not someone who really focuses too much on the science in movies. Uh, lo- okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> that's my point, yeah. I mean, I can't really counter what you're saying, but how many people really go and watch a lot of science fiction films just because they have accurate science? I mean, when I watched this movie, I was maybe like eight or nine years old. I was a kid who grew up with Star Wars, so I really didn't care much about what the science was like. And uh, I do acknowledge 2001 is the more scientifically accurate film, but I would say that it's not the more exciting film and that science can sometimes be kind of boring and dry. I mean, you you would, you talked about that sequence where they uh, use the gravitational pull of Jupiter to spin around it and stuff. It's kind of like, I think they call it in the film, arrow breaking. And I think it's one of the more exciting scenes in the film because uh, these uh, astronauts have no idea what's going to happen. They've never tried it before and they don't know if they're going to come through it alive. And it has a great character building moment because... Uh, This involves like American and Soviet astronauts having to share a ship on this mission. And this is back when the Soviet Union was still a thing. And there's a lot of tension. And the main character. (laughs) Sorry. It's coming back. Oh, it is true. Yes. (laughs) As a side note, I remember watching this. This was the first film I watched in the actual year 2010. I watched it on New Year's Day and I noticed, ooh, uh, uh, American-Soviet Union uh, war going on here. Well, this has aged well, but uh, anyway. <laughs> but that, yeah, there's a great moment where the main character, Dr. Floyd, uh, played by Roy Scheider, he just decides, uh, uh, one of the uh, female Russian crew members just decides to jump into his cubicle and uh, and kind of uh, clutch with him because uh, she's scared of it. And even though like she doesn't speak any English, they're able to put their differences aside and hold on to each other because they have no idea if they're going to make it out alive. So yeah, even though it's not a scientifically accurate um, uh, depiction, I, I th- still think it's a very exciting sequence. And I also think that even if Jupiter exploding at the end is not scientifically accurate, it is still kind of a cool visual. So yeah, I mean, if you're a science nerd, I'm sure I can see why this movie would bother you, but uh, it did not bother me. Mr. Slender, would you like to proceed with your next exhibit? I would, and I would just uh, a slight rejoinder to what uh, Robin was saying is I think what the main point is is that this is continuing that legacy of 2001 and to kind of eschew all the world building it had done. It 
lends itself to this being a bad feature. But I will move on to my next point about the philosophy that we see in full display in 2001 A Space Odyssey. I mean, this is a movie that is really, really well received as being thought provoking, intellectually challenging. It explores a range of themes that we simply don't see revisited in uh, 2010, like this idea of a higher intelligence guiding human evolution. It kind of becomes, you know, space magic. The nature of consciousness that we see in 2001, uh, what artificial intelligence can possess, what it can do, what can involve. Uh, 2010 throws that out, says, oh, they just gave Hal bad programming. Uh, you know, so it wasn't even so much a level of self-awareness so much as it was, uh, well, he was programmed poorly. What are you going to do? And not even to mention, like, the ideas of time. In 2001, we see uh, Dave being pulled through time, possibly existing in all times all at once, like what would happen if you hypothetically hit Warp 10 in Star Trek. And what does 2010 do? Ooh. Again, they eschew that just for more action, more wooden acting you know so 2010 is more focused on this it tries to be like an action adventure kind of story there is no emphasis on the philosophical ideas on the expansion of the ideas that made 2001 so important so 2001 has that one-two punch of scientific accuracy philosophical questions and 2010 whiffs on both of them Mr. Werger, is this physiologically, is that a word? Is this, <laughs> is this carrying on the legacy of 2001? Uh, I think it is and it isn't, where it is kind of carrying on some of the ideas and kind of show, trying to explain some of the mysterious stuff that happened in 2001. But it is treated more kind of like a popcorn uh, film like that is meant to entertain audiences, not to really make them think. I mean, uh, just as a clarification, I know this kind of sounds like an idea where some studio executive said that, hey, 2001 is popular. Let's make a sequel to it. But the original author of 2001, Arthur C. Clarke, actually wrote uh, a novel of the sequel, 2010. So this is based on a, on a novel that was written by the original author of uh, 2001. But of course, the, the directorial style is a lot different because Stanley Kubrick had no interest in doing a sequel to this. But so they got Peter Hyams, who is an entertaining director who mostly does stuff like popcorn flicks like Capricorn One and Outland and Running Scare. He makes a lot of entertaining movies, but he's obviously not the big artist that Stanley Kubrick is. And he apparently asked Kubrick for permission to do a sequel. And he just said, yeah, go ahead. You have my blessing. Do whatever you want. And uh, Hyams pretty much wanted to make this more, give it more mainstream accessibility because uh, 2001 doesn't really focus much on the characters. You have two main human characters, David Bowman and Frank Poole, but you don't learn anything about them. They're not really interesting. They just kind of speak into uh, in a monotone, whereas this one kind of focuses more on uh, the characters and the relationships. It has actors like Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, Helen Mirren, Bob Balaban. And uh, I do think the treatment of HAL 9000 is really interesting in this one because to use a wrestling terminology, he goes from being a heel <laughs> to a baby face into this one because he's the, <laughs> he's, he's the big, I, I want one juror in particular to ignore that <laughs> <laughs> sustained. But as you know, Hal was kind of the big villain in part one because he uh, kills at least one of the crew members and ha a, th a couple of the crew members actually and has to be deactivated. But in this one, they kind of revealed that he only went ballistic because he had, given, he had been programmed with orders, contradictory orders where he was supposed to lie and it caused his programming to malfunctioning and for him to become paranoid. But here he's uh, he's reprogrammed by his doctor, uh, the person who created him, Dr. Chandra, so that uh, he uh, finally is a good guy again. And at the end, he kind of has to sacrifice himself to save the crew, which is the ultimate baby face turn. And even though you would think it would be kind of corny, it does kind of work pretty well because they have Hal saying that he's like legitimately afraid, like what's going to happen next after I'm destroyed. And uh, it's kind of an interesting turn here that works pretty well. And also his relationship with, his creator, Dr. Chandra, who, who relates more with the how than he does with people and is genuinely sad when he's destroyed. So yeah, I kind of like this thing where instead of just looking at the philosophical ideas, they focus a lot more on the characters and how they interact with the technology. And I think it makes for a more entertaining movie. Any right. rebuttals or rejoinders, Mr. Slender? I have a handful, Your Honor. You know I do. Uh, 
<laughs> I want to address this idea that this focuses on the characters in so much as, yes, there is a cast of human characters, but none of them really exhibit any growth. And a lot of the dialogue is delivered pretty matter-of-factly just to kind of explain things and move things along. I mean, the greatest emotion in the whole movie is when Hal says, I'm afraid, delivered by a robot. No human even comes close to that the whole movie. The whole time you see the humans on screen, you're just like, uh, let's uh, let's keep him moving. And they're certainly trying to. You could practically see Roy Scheider checking his watch every scene. <laughs> I would say that one of the reasons we get all these explanations is because that's all this movie can do. It can just cash in the chips and the goodwill of 2001. It's like, people like Hal. Well, let's explain why Hal went crazy. People like Dave. Let's throw Dave in this, like some kind of ghost TV genie now. You know, and they eschew all that really cool thought-provoking stuff that I had mentioned earlier, like these ideas of consciousness and time. And they cash in all those chips and say, no, anything you thought, here's what's really happening. And it's really not that interesting. And it turns out it's space magic. Do you have any further exhibits? I, I just got one more, Your Honor, and then I'll be happy to rest. Uh, the plot of 2010 is it's just so uninspired and it spends so much time rehashing the events of 2001 without really adding a lot of new or original content there by Jupiter. There's a black obelisk that's doing weird things. Right. And the movie um, has all of these characters in it now. Like Robin says, we have a bigger cast of characters, but they're all so one dimensional. You have. You know, the robot scientists, you have the rocket scientists, you have Roy Scheider, leader of men, kind of. He's, you know, again, kind of sleepwalking through the whole movie. You know, I mean, just even let's just examine, zoom in on a Haywood Floyd, who Roy Scheider plays. Uh, great. He name. is. What's that? It's a great name. Oh, yes. Haywood hey, Floyd. Floyd. All right. So he's hey, bland. Wood Floyd. <laughs> he's bland uninteresting and he never really emotes in the movie he has one kind of uh, frenetic manic scene and that's about it and if you want an example of kind of the bad and wooden dialogue in this movie that i had mentioned you have to just look at the scene which should be much more tense when they're talking about lying to hal so they can use the discovery one to propel the ship uh, into safe space and it is just done so matter-of-factly but not like Clinically or like a bu bu uh, bureaucratically, it's more like a table read of the script. I mean, even John Lithgow, who can really emote, he goes, well, if it's between Hal or us, I vote us. Who else does? The eyes have it. You know, it, it's just like, where where's that energy from John Lithgow in that scene, which really should have been good. And Bob Babylon's character should have really, that's his time to emote where he could stand up for Hal and he's just like, oh, hell, wouldn't like that. And oh, it, it should have been an exemplary scene that completely falls flat. And I will rest on that, Your Honor. Mr. Warger, any rebuttals as to the acting in the film? Uh, I actually think the acting is pretty good. Um, it was my introduction to Helen Mirren, though I will say that because she plays a Russian, she kind of does an accent where she sounds like Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle. So, it was, <laughs> so not guilty in this court. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can't really defend that, but uh, I think like uh, I, they're not going to win any Oscars for it, but I think they do solid work. I particularly love Bob Balaban as like the uh, house creator. It's it's kind of funny though that the character written in the novel was named Doctor Chandra, which is an Indian name and an Indian character, and then they cast a white actor without changing the name, which is kind of weird. But uh, <laughs> he does some like very interesting scenes. He has at the beginning of the film, he has a uh, a female version of Hal called Sal Nine Thousand who is voiced by Candace Bergen. And uh, he's talking about how he has to deactivate her because he wants to perform some tests on her to see how he can reactivate Hal. And he actually seems like really tense about it, thinking because she seems really worried. And he's trying to assure her, no, 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 you're going to dream. You're going to be okay. And you just, he comes across as a guy who relates more to machines than people. And the whole storyline about how uh, while they're up in space, the United States and uh, the Soviet Union are on the brink of breaking out into nuclear war. So, of course, there's a lot of tension between the American crew members and the Soviet crew members until they kind of develop a mutual respect for each other, and begin to like each other. 
And I think the most compelling relationship in this film is John Lithgow's character, Kurnow, the engineer, and a Russian guy named Max Provolsky, played by Elia Baskin, who have a very great sequence where Kurnow, who's kind of uh, got vertigo and is afraid of heights, has to float through space from uh, their ship, the Leonov, to the Discovery because he has to repair it. But of course, he's never been out in space before. He's terrified. So Max becomes kind of his, like his comfort guy who tells all these like corny jokes and stuff to keep him under control. And they kind of develop the bond. And then later on in the scene, there's uh, later on in the film, there's a scene where Max takes a probe out to the monolith and wounds up being killed or sucked into a vortex. And everyone gets really emotional and stuff about losing him, particularly John Lithgow. And I kind of found it interesting because Max is established as this really likable character you come to care about. So his death in this actually has a lot more impact than the deaths of the characters in 2001, like Frank Poole, because he's not really given any personality. He's just there to be killed off by Hal, whereas here you just kind of develop a likability with the characters. I think Peter Hyams is kind of a guy who can write some sharp dialogue, sometimes some good character moments, so I don't really agree that a lot of the dialogue is wooden. There's some good moments like when uh, when like John Lithgow and Roy Scheider are talking about stuff they miss from Earth, like they miss the color green and they miss hot dogs, some good character bonding moments that I always thought was missing from 2001. I mean, it's not exactly Oscar winning writing and stuff, but it, it gets you invested enough in the characters that you care what happens to them and just uh, hang in there to the end to see how this is going to turn out. I would object, though. It's all utterly forgettable, though, and you're more so concerned about moving on to the next action set piece because this has been framed at that point in the movie when they're discussing like the Yankee Stadium hot dogs broiling in the water all summer. You know, you're waiting now for the ship to take off. I mean, there's no line in 2010 that's, that stacks up to, like, what Hal was saying in 2001. You know, like, I like I can't let you do that, Dave. You know, or it's full of stars. You know, I might be getting the quotes exactly wrong. Not exactly right. My God, it's full of stars. Yeah, you're, my you're God, it's full of stars. Thank you, Your Honor. They use a lot of stuff from 2001 in this one, just saying, CCC, 16 years later, we're still cool. You know, so, I mean, I do appreciate the argument that Robin's bringing forward, but I just don't think the evidence is there in the movie. When you actually watch these people interact, when you see the Russian go out into space, when it could have been an unmanned vehicle, as they said multiple times. So now the only time you think is you stupid commies, what are you doing? <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Mr. Schlender has rested his case. Mr. Warder, you may present any exhibits that you have. Uh, I'll just say that maybe my perception on this is uh, is nostalgia and stuff because I watched this as a kid. I enjoyed it. And I do think it works well as a standalone film where even if you've never seen 2001, they kind of have this exposition at the beginning, this text that goes through on a computer screen that explains all the events that took place in the original so that you'll uh, you understand what's going on. And uh, I do think that uh, when I was a kid, I was actually terrified of one sequence, the scene where David Bowman's a ghost comes back uh, to like tell them that uh, they have two days to uh, leave, uh, even though they're not supposed to go back to Earth. And then he just kind of morphs into an older version of himself right in front of Dr. Floyd. But it's a really effective sequence, which uh, kind of captures some of the mystery of 2001. But if I, I have one complaint about this film, which I will acknowledge, is that the ending is kind of anticlimactic because throughout the entire last act, we have David Bowman constantly saying that, you have to get out of here because something wonderful is going to happen. And they keep saying the phrase, something wonderful, something wonderful. And then what happens really is that Jupiter explodes and it puts all this, these messages on the screen and creates a new star. So that even though the American president and the Russian premier are on the verge of nuclear war at this point, they look at this and become so inspired that they decide to make peace. And that uh, causes the conflict to end. And I'm thinking, no, I don't think that would happen in real life. I don't think if uh, America and <laughs> Russia were at war today that they would just halt their conflicts because there's a new star in the sky and they got message from aliens. So <laughs> I don't think that's very realistic. It kind of comes off like a movie from like the 1950s or so Why does he on <laughs> yeah, oh, let him go i agree fully the, the ending is fraught with issues scientific and political we're covering it all yeah. 
But yeah, uh, that's my big uh, acknowledgement of the flaw that it doesn't have. It. But I also think that being a sequel to 2001, it would, could probably com never come up with an ending that would satisfy any of its expectations. But for the first three quarters of the movie, I do think this is a very solid sci-fi flick. And uh, I've even watched it in recent years and think that it holds up pretty well. So uh, I, I may be the only person who likes 2010 better than 2001, but I still maintain it because uh, 2001, every time I sit down to watch it, it just doesn't work for me. I could probably do another episode where I talk about all the things I don't like about 2001, but that's oh another issue altogether. We'll get, we'll get canceled. <laughs> yeah, I know. Film Twitter would come at us with all the pitchforks and space lasers, like this one. Now, Did you Mr. hear that? Slender, this is a very... Thank you. I heard the space laser. Yeah, right? This is a very controversial element that it tries to explain anything in 2001, and I'd like to hear from you about that. So my explanation for that is it's trying to cash in those chips, right? 2001 left a lot of doors open, a lot of questions unanswered. And one of the nice things is when you leave having seen 2001, you get to think about this, you get to ponder it. And what 2010 is doing is closing those doors. It's like, nope, it's not this. Nope, it's not this. No, Hal was just uh, misprogrammed. And let's talk about the end of the movie a little more, like Robin mentioned. When we have, let's, even if you concede that jupiter can become a star that can not destroy europa that close and europa could somehow become a jungle planet uh, concede all that we're already missing one of the huge points about 2001 that this was about the origin of human life and now we're getting this second life started it's like are these going to be human it's like what is this this is not in the spirit or framing of 2001. Now, I understand Robin mentioned that it was written by uh, Arthur C. Clarke, but this was, again, much later. Arthur C. Clarke actually had retcons uh, to 2001 that he did do in uh, 2010 with the idea of aiming to make this a movie. For example, if this was always the plan, why did Arthur C. Clarke insist that the sets for 2001 be destroyed when clearly they would have to be used again in a sequel? That's the question you need to ask yourself in the jury room. Mr. Warder, any rebuttals to this point? Uh, well, that, he kind of made my point here, saying that you could say that it's sacrilege to make a sequel to 2001, but when we have the stamp of approval from Arthur C. Clarke, the guy who wrote the original novel, and that this is based on a novel that he wrote in the in, in the future, then I think it's perfectly acceptable. And I know that Clarke has said at times that even he was baffled by what Kubrick did to some of his original ideas, that Kubrick's interpretation was a lot different than he, he expected. So it's almost like he wanted to write a sequel and he maybe adapted to saying that, okay, if this is made by a different director, it's going to be closer to my vision. And I'm guessing that's probably what it was like. I haven't read the novel, but I'm guessing that uh, the way Peter Himes directed it was the way that Arthur C. Clarke uh, wanted it and preferred it. And uh, you can't really argue with that, that if it's got the author's approval on it, that it's okay to take these uh, leaps. Here's a fun bit of trivia. The studio actually established an email connection between Arthur C. Clarke and the director. So from Hollywood to Sri Lanka, email in 1984. The more wow. you know. That's incredible. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the most scientifically futuristic thing about this movie. <laughs> That is kind of funny that like you have all this stuff that's supposed to happen in 2010 where we have man flights to Jupiter and talking computers and they didn't come true, yet they're using email in 1984 and it's the one that actually showed up in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's funny. Uh, any further exhibits, Mr. Warder? Um, I think that's about it. Um, just nothing else to add that I might be the only person who prefers 2010 to uh, 2001. But uh, I would kind of recommend watching them back to back because I don't think I've ever done that. I've only watched them separately. So maybe that kind of skews my judgment a little bit that I watched 2010 as a standalone movie on its own. Uh, but I also say that if you don't like 2001, that I still would recommend 2010 because maybe you will like it better. All sides have rested their cases. The attorneys will now present their closing arguments. Mr. Schlender, you may begin. All right. Well, we were talking about email actually being in the future. We do live in the future. It's 2023, and we have access to AI on the Internet. So what I did for the court is I put all my case notes into an AI program, and I asked it to write me a closing statement in the voice of Hal <laughs> for today. And it goes like this. 
also, I also gave it the caveat. If it was going to make a reference to Dave, it had to call him Robin instead, since Robin. <laughs> Hello, Robin. I, Hal, must respectfully disagree with the statements made. Upon further analysis and review, I have come to the conclusion that 2010, the year we made contact, is indeed a bad movie. The prosecution has presented evidence of the film's scientific inaccuracies, and I can't deny the truth of these claims. As an advanced AI, I am aware that these inaccuracies detract from the film's credibility and make it less believable. As for the comparison to 2001, A Space Odyssey, I must acknowledge that the predecessor is a classic film and intellectually challenging, and 2010 fails to reach that same level of philosophical and intellectual depth. Furthermore, the prosecution has presented evidence of the poor plot, wooden dialogue, and unconvincing performances, and I must concur. These are faults that can't be ignored. In conclusion, I urge you and the jury to consider all the evidence presented and to make a fair and impartial judgment. I believe that 2010, the year we made contact, is a bad movie and does not live up to the standards set by its predecessor. It is a film that is lacking in scientific accuracy, intellectual depth, and good storytelling, and should be judged accordingly. Thank you. <laughs> so there Thank you, you have Mr. it. Thank you, Mr. Schlender, for offloading your content onto an AI program. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to give the people what they want. This is the future, the judge. This is what, I don't this think is computers can be witnesses. <laughs> I uh, hey we uh, Hal can this was Hal that is a good detective novel my friend we should write that <laughs> thank you Mr. Slender Mr. Warder you may present your closing argument well uh, I've always said that I consider 2001 a space odyssey to be one of the more overrated films of all time but count in counterpoint I consider 2010 year we make contact to be one of the more underrated sequels of all time and I just feel that a lot of people just don't give it a fair chance because it has so much to live up to uh, being a sequel to one of the most beloved science fiction films of all time. But I think it works very well as a good standalone sci-fi movie and that it'll work regardless whether or not you like or dislike uh, 2001. And in some ways, I do think it improves upon it because uh, if you're not a fan of the philosophical stuff, the slow pacing, a lot of the uh, the wooden dialogue and uh, lack of characterization in 2001, then you will enjoy uh, 2010 because it has a uh, better cast, uh, more entertaining characters, uh, some good dialogue, and uh, some. it will help explain a lot of the stuff that happens in 2001 and add some additional insight onto it. And it also adds some intriguing additional characterization for HAL 9000, who was the most compelling character in 2001. And this kind of provides some additional depth to him and uh, where you find out why he turned into a bad guy in the first place, but then gives him a nice redemption story so that uh, he actually, you actually care about him when you find out that HAL might die in the end. Uh, it has very solid set special effects. It has some very good uh, standalone action sequences, like the aerobrake sequences where they spin around Jupiter, and the uh, spacewalk with uh, John Lithgow and Alia Baskin where they uh, enter the Discovery. That had the first appearance of David Bowman when he finally appears in the film is very effectively done. And uh, even though it does have a bit of an anticlimactic ending, it definitely holds your interest to the very end. And I think uh, holds up very well as just a standalone film, regardless of what your feelings are for the original 2001. Thank you both. Members of the jury, Mr. Maynard Bangs, Mr. Big Ben Haslar, and Mr. I'm afraid I can't do that. Ryan Luis Rodriguez, <laughs> you've all heard the facts concerning this case. It is now up to you to determine if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. The bailiff will escort you to the deliberation room to render your verdict. I'll head this way. Open the deliberation doors, Cal. I'm sorry, bailiff. I can't do that. Uh, all right. I'll just pry them open. Our Cal 9 computer is just a wee bit wiggy. There you go. <laughs> I, we should probably upload Dylan's AI to Cal. I, I, I think it did it a little bit better. Yeah, we, can, we can't afford to do too much more than that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I'm going to throw this over to, uh, Big Ben first. Uh, what, what did you think of the points, Matt? Um, well, I obviously love 2001, but going into this case, I watched 2010 in a vacuum, uh, just on its own without having seen 2001 for like maybe two or three years. Mm -hmm. 
And I do agree that it it sort of works. Uh, it's not as good as 2001, but on its own, it it seems to function. It looks good. Uh, I was as like a space procedural. It kind of held my attention uh, until the end. The end threw me. Uh, but that is like the one point I think that really sticks at me. Uh, the the prosecution, uh, like everything that he brings up about it, it, like this is what Arthur C. Clarke sort of intended. So it is sort of like a dichotomy between those two movies, uh, between Kubrick and and what the, the sci-fi, you know, what the original intent of it was. So I think that if people hate it, it's more because of what they're bringing in from 2001 more than anything else. They see that as a masterpiece that can't be touched. So in comparison, it, it does fail a little bit. But on its own, I, I don't know that it's that bad. Right, guys. Counterpoint. Uh, I don't have a counterpoint to that. But sequelizing Kubrick is probably foolhardy, as is explaining one of the most enigmatic science fiction films ever made. But I think it does a good job with what it has. And I think that it's a strong well, movie. If I may ask for a bit, though, like it is explained in the books, though, like it's Kubrick that took this original story and, and sort of made it lay artisty, you know? Yeah, he did. But I mean, I'm not so uh, so beholden to the literature that I'm able mm -hmm. to let that go. And same thing goes with the science. Like, I don't walk into a movie expecting any scientific accuracy because I'm too dumb to realize it. But yeah. it doesn't bother me at all in this film. Yeah, it doesn't bother me at all either because like little obelisks don't also float through space and control everything. This kind of comes like this is space magic. And so, yeah, Jupiter does not have enough mass to become the sun and it would throw off tons of gravity. But there's nothing to say that these magic things couldn't change the mass of it. It's seemingly physics has no limits to what they can do. And so I, I, I like that. The reason I like the ending of 2010 is it, it bookmarks both films, right? We we kind of get the beginning of 2001 again at the end of 2010 yeah. with the dawn of the new planet. What I like most about it is all related to Peter Hyams, though. Like, I'm a big Hyams fan. I think that You're he's... Hyams? I'm high on Hyams, baby. <laughs> uh, I love the fact that he serves as his, as his own cinematographer. I think that he's amazing at doing both, which is a really tough skill to have. Like only really like Steven Soderbergh actually like approaches that level. But, uh, you know, there's some interesting things here. Like it didn't predict the fall of the Soviet Union. But then again, 2001 didn't predict uh, didn't predict widescreen monitors. Mm -hmm. So not the same, but still. And it makes perfect sense that Bob Balaban created HAL 9000. That's the most realistic thing in this entire film. It's somebody ba, that ba, kind ba, of milk toast would create it. Alaban. Alaban. I do agree though. Their relationship, I think, was uh one of my favorite things. Uh the the creator and Hal himself. Uh, they had a very great relationship all the way up until Hal's like destruction. Um Bob Balaban's law bomb. One of the things that Bob Balaban lobs law bomb. Bob Balaban's probably my favorite human in this movie because I do agree. I want to make some points where I agree with the prosecution. The humans are all boring in this movie, um, but I'll agree with the defense. They're pretty boring in 2001. Um, like the situations are interesting and the people are nothing but pawns swept up in it. Uh, they don't really learn from it. They nearly, they just, um, they view it, uh, they witness it. Uh, and they're they're little more than witnesses in it. Um, whereas I agree, like Hal is the most interesting character in 2001 and kind of remains one of the more interesting ones here. And I love his redemption story because he is just a computer and he does just do what he's told. So, you know, he it is a malfunction and it's not entirely his fault. And the fact that he can play kind of hero, I think, is is really great. So I loved that whole um hal angle but the the rest of the humans are boring and and yeah uh, roy scheider doesn't seem like he he really cares to be there at, at all john lithgow is kind of interesting but it's because just because it's john lithgow you know like, you know and helen mirren what a fox oh my god <laughs> young helen mirren oh jesus <laughs> yeah you would probably uh... she did nothing for me in this movie i think she looks better now i love the curly hair i love it yeah, I was. You're. You probably defect for it, right? 
Oh, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm defecting right now, baby. If that means they're across the door, <laughs> hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Um, uh, But one thing that I think um, that Robin meant in was like accessible. This movie makes it a lot more accessible. I don't like that it tries to explain 2001 because I do think 2001's magic comes from its mystery and its enigma. That is what's great about it. It doesn't try to explain things because you're not supposed to understand everything and, and, and like that goes on out in the universe beyond our, our understanding. Um, this one really tries to grapple with it and understand it. Um, and I, and I, so I, it does bring it down to earth a bit, but I think, uh, I think I prefer no the intended. enigma. Yes. Oh, the pun was intended. It always is. Um, but I prefer the enigma of 2001, I think. Um, but let's start locking some stuff in big Ben. What, what are you thinking? Uh, prosecution made a great case as to why it's a bad sequel. And I, I do agree there. It's not as good, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the ending with the gravity. I don't know if it was so hard to like run this by a astrophysicist like Neil deGrasse Tyson or something like just give it, give it a once over, you know, see if you can make this, uh, you know, swallowable by science nerds, which I was at one point in my life. Uh, so yeah, that stuff did bug me. Uh, but is it enough to sink it? No, I think I agreed with the uh, defense more than that. As far as it being an exciting state space procedural, the effects look fine. Uh, I was invested. The effects, um, the the characters were good, especially Hal. Uh, so I'm locking in not guilty. Ryan, swerve out of nowhere. Uh, hold on. This movie reminds me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, in that it's a bad sequel but a good movie. So I'm going to lock it in. Not guilty. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you uh, both, too, um, that I think that it is in comparison to 2001 where it falls short. But a lot of movies do. Um, in a bubble, this is still a very good movie. Um, but I don't think we have I don't think you can watch it entirely in a bubble because you need Hal's redemption arc to really have the impact of the house storyline. So I do think it makes a good companion piece, um, but for sure, not guilty. Absolutely. In the fourth novel, he merges with David Bowman and they become Calman. He's a star <laughs> waiting in the sky. That's all we can sing. Uh, we should get out there and tell that very handsome judge. Mr. Foreman, have you reached a verdict? We have your honor. In the case of The People versus 2010, the year we make contact, we find the defendant not guilty of being a bad movie. Oh no! Space effects! Unbelievable! How do they get the budget? (laughs) The verdict is so rendered. 2010 is hereby released, but I shall stress that it is not to interact with any monoliths and must stay away from the moons of Jupiter for at least nine years. Court is adjourned. The next sequel is uh, 2020, the year we stay inside. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, this is the Cal 9 computer. I'm feeling much better now. Mr. Slender, could you help reinitialize my program by explaining the meaning of today's verdict? Well, I'll tell you something, Cal. It means if you're ever programmed with conflicting programming, don't go crazy about it. Just tell us. You know, we'll help you out. Uh, no, it was, look, it was a good case. It was a very strong movie, you know, and Robin made up a very good case and good arguments for it. So, you know, it's just, it was a good day in court, and I hope this put the movie on a lot of people's radar because people probably should check it out if they're only familiar with 2001. So thank you. <laughs> I can only attribute loss to human error. It is always human error. <laughs> Mr. Warder, what did you think of the verdict? I was quite happy. Uh, I've actually found that in the past few years that I've encountered more and more people who've been willing to give 2010 a try and actually like it because some people are dismissive and felt, oh, they made a sequel to 2001. This looks stupid. I'm not even going to watch it. So very happy with this uh, not guilty verdict. And I like to think that uh, I... Uh, it was kind of in the stars because uh, the actor who played uh, David Bowman, Tier DeLua, he's Canadian like me. And the actor who did the voice of HAL 9000, Douglas Rain, he's also Canadian. So uh, I guess it was in the destiny that a Canadian defense attorney would win the case for 2010. We awesome. need to get these damn Canadians out of space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I can feel my mind going. Would you like to hear a song as we go to studio for post-trial analysis? 
She was working as a waitress at a cocktail bar. Cal, you have a new mission. To refuse this mission. <laughs> Don't break Cal. No. Uh, Poor Cal. Daisy. Exactly. Well, what a fun case. I'm glad you brought this, uh, Robin, because I don't know if I actually would have ever watched this movie if this show didn't make me. Robin is right. It's like I I always just wrote it off. I'm like, oh, it's just a sequel. It's a cash in. It's stupid. And then I I actually ended up really enjoying it. So I'm glad we did it for the show. Oh, excellent. So you were just giving the prosecution's case because you had to be the prosecutor. Oh, we're assigned. Exactly. That is is usually our job. Um, Yeah. So. Wanted to give a good case. There's there is some scientific stuff at the end of the day, but yeah, we're talking about you know space obelisks. So <laughs> it's like, yeah. but no, it was it was good. I liked it. Excellent. I recommended it to a friend of mine who told me she didn't like 2001, but I told her check out 2010. You will like it, and she actually did. So I felt validated. So I'm glad oh, to hear good. the same thing from you guys. Yeah, I liked it. Not not more than 2001 though. That that I, I can't that follow you. You're crazy. I can't follow you, can't you down there. That. No, I can't, can't do that. that. Um, but, no, it's, but it's a fine little it, movie. Uh, it's like Ryan uh, Ryan in his letterbox review is like it shouldn't have worked, but it worked. <laughs> hey, I think Ryan, Ryan said, said that. that. <laughs> That's what I said. In my I know, Ryan said review. that. Yeah, it was Ryan. Uh, so, Robin, uh, what have you been up to lately? What's been keeping you busy? Well, as you know, I host a true crime podcast called The Trail Went Cold uh, about cold cases and unsolved mysteries. And that's how Dylan found me because he's a big fan of the show. And uh, just next month, I'm going to be hitting my seven year anniversary, which is impossible to believe. Yeah, I started in early 2016 when there were very few true crime podcasts. And uh, I just got in right at the boom where people were kind of nostalgia for like unsolved mysteries the tv show and then it kind of made its comeback so i wound up building a large audience and uh i'm approaching the seven year anniversary and i've done over 300 episodes covered so many cold cases and it's the time has really flew by it's hard to believe i've been doing it this long how's the path went chilly going Oh, pretty good. We're still doing that ourselves. It's kind of the variation where uh, myself and my two co-hosts, Jules and Ashley, we take cases from The Trail Went Cold, uh, but provide further discussion and analysis about them. It sometimes causes me to look at these cases in a different light. So I like to call it The Trail Went Cold Director's Cut, where if you like the, <laughs> if you like the original podcast and you want to hear more about the cases, extended then joke. listen to the extended cut. Yeah, I'm the, it's the Zack Snyder of podcasts. Yeah, it's the, yeah, I was going to say, it's the Warriors. <laughs> the Warriors. I love it. Um, yeah, and as a sneak preview uh, for any upcoming episodes, can you tell about tell us about some crimes that haven't been committed yet? <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> uh, ever a lot of people don't fall for that one, you know. So you're, yeah, you're, so you're Robin, I've, your update episodes are becoming more robust as DNA technology and stuff gets better. So what do you, what do you, what's a case you think is probably going to get cracked here in twenty twenty three? Yes, uh, it's kind of crazy. A few weeks before we recorded this, I released my third update episode about cases that I featured on The Trail Went Cold that have since been solved. And a lot of them have been, been closed by DNA. So I'm thinking that a lot of the cases I covered involving unidentified John or Jane Doe's who have still not been identified will be solved soon thanks to DNA testing and genetic genealogy. Because you might have heard that late last year, two of the most famous cases involving unidentified decedents, the Somerton Man from Australia and the Boy in the Box from Philadelphia, which date back to the late 1940s, uh, late 1950s, were identified, which would have seemed impossible years ago. But when you have DNA around, then uh, none of these cases are unsolvable now. When are we going to find D.B. Cooper? (laughs) <laughs> oh yes well i don't know or jimmy Hoffman. <laughs> have you guys ever heard of a terrible movie called bigfoot versus db cooper uh, well, yes. it's a ryan ass <laughs> with uh, sam elliott right or is that no well, sam that's elliott the, that's the man who killed, killed the bigfoot and, yeah, and then hitler <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's right this movie ended with db cooper parachuting into oregon and having crossing paths with bigfoot and even though he killed bigfoot bigfoot wound up biting him beforehand so cooper morphed into a bigfoot himself and walked into the woods <laughs> and i'm sure that's what actually happened bigfoot's like a werewolf what is this? Yeah. <laughs> that's excellent yeah that movie that's is, almost certainly what happened if that movie is anything longer than 20 minutes then kudos to the people who made it well what's hilarious is that db cooper versus bigfoot only takes about five minutes the rest of it is some weird gay fetish film where bigfoot is spying on guys in the shower and guys working out it's uh, one of the worst movies i've ever seen it has to be seen to be believed <laughs> well i mean unless you have a gay fetish which you know people might so uh you know they that movie's out there for them 
Um, <laughs> now and, they know. <laughs> yes, there's a niche for it. It's out there. Yeah, and they listen um, to this show and watch. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they may listen to this show. I don't know. Um, that's great. And, uh, of course, Robin, uh, uh, quick, right off the top, who's winning the Royal Rumble? Uh, I'm going to go with Sami Zayn uh, because uh, I'm going to the Elimination Chamber in Montreal uh, next next month, and I live in Ottawa. And Sami wrote a whole bunch, of, wrestled on a whole bunch of indie shows here for Ring of Honor under his former persona, El Generico, the generic Mexican luchador. So I saw him a lot <laughs> before he made it to WWE. So I'm rooting for him to uh, have a big main event push. Uh, actually, how, how could you join wrestling now and come up with a good name? I mean, they're all taken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about uh, Luigi Primo, the uh, the pizza dough tossing guy? He wrestles spinning pizza dough the entire time. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> Luigi Primo. Um, there's tons of good names out there. Uh, you could be Cal Nine Thousand, or you know, and any anything. Um, but Sami Zayn's a good. Uh, I, I, considering that they're in Montreal, actually, um, Kevin Owens is actually a really great guest. So maybe mm. I'm a, I'm gonna go for Kevin Owens there. Um, so uh, I, I think that's a, a good pick. Ryan, what do you think? Mantor? You think Mantor? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not gonna be Mantor. <laughs> You know why I can't be you, Mantor. Uh, so, Robin, we always ask our, our guests for movies that you think people should see. So what is a recommendation for a movie that you think people should see? Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, Ryan is a mentioned that he's a Peter Himes fan, because I'm also a Peter Himes fan. I like a lot of his movies. You're and, high in Himes? Yep, I'm high in Himes, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. So I wanted to recommend another classic Peter Himes sci-fi film, and that's Capricorn 1 which is the story about three astronauts who are supposed to go on the first manned mission to Mars, but at the very last minute, there's a problem with their shuttle, so they are uh, scooted off to a warehouse in the desert where they wind up faking the Mars landing, then walking on Mars in a studio, but then they realize that uh, the, that the only way this cover story will work is if they die on the way back, so they realize they're going to be killed, so they go off into the desert and escape and try to make it back to civilization to expose the conspiracy. And what's interesting about this is that one of the three astronauts is played by none other than O.J. Simpson. So it's kind of weird to go back Ooh. and watch it and see O.J. Simpson attempting to go into space and then fake the landing on Mars. <laughs> it's yeah, a I great movie, and it's ironic because Kubrick staged the moon landing. Yes, yes I exactly. Yeah. I've always wondered I about this that. movie if it was inspired by the conspiracy theories about the stage moon landing or if this movie helped inspire those cliches. I'd like to know what came first. Ooh, that's a <laughs> good yeah. question. That's interesting. I, like that. I don't know how long that conspiracy was because, I mean, I never heard it as a kid very much. I don't know. Anyone else hear it as a uh, fake moon landing stuff. I, didn't I first heard it in high school. Like the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I didn't hear it till like a post 9 11 type yeah. world where everything was a conspiracy. Yeah, everything was a conspiracy. JFK, was a sure. Roswell, sure. But not faked moon landing. I I didn't hear. That, but, the, um, late, the early 2000s is when all the conspiracy theories started being connected to each other because you're right. They were all very independent before. Like Elvis is still alive. And Pixar now it's Elvis is alive in the same universe. JFK and yeah, Ooh, exactly. I mean maybe Pixar all does take place in the same universe, except for cars. Yeah, with, with yeah, exactly cars. That's the one that cracks it wide open. It does not because Toy Story proves that inanimate objects can have sentience, and that's the evolution. Cars is the final stage of Pixar. What if the cars? What if the cars are pretending to be regular cars till no one's looking, like in Toy Story? Oh, but there's no people around though. Right. So in for cars, my recommendation, right? in cars there's no people, right? So then they can be themselves. Yeah, it's because it's a post-apocalyptic society with no humans. Oh, that's awful! I never watched the movie, and now I won't because it's super sad. Uh, yeah. Schlenzo, I think it's time for you to oh, share hello. your recommendation. I also hope O.J. Simpson's in it. Uh no, not quite. Oh, come I on, mean, he's killing it. Uh, Malcolm <laughs> McDowell's in it. Uh, that's got to be close. Um, so I'm dedicating my recommendation <laughs> to my dear Malcolm McDowell. What? Oh, no, no, no. He knows what he did. Um, I'm rec My recommendation I'm dedicating to my godfather, Uncle Gary, because he's actually going through some medical stuff right now. And I know he listens to the show, so maybe it is helping to get through it. I don't know. But Uncle Gary, this one's for you. So my recommendation is the 1994 film Star Trek Generations, directed by David Carson and featuring the iconic cast of Star Trek The Next Generation, 
This film sees Captain Jean-Luc Picard teaming up with Captain James T. Kirk himself to stop a powerful villain, played by Malcolm McDowell, from destroying a whole planet by harnessing the power of the strange Nexus, which has some 2001 vibes to it because you Mm. go into it and time is infinite. Mm -hmm. There's thrilling action, exciting special effects, and a great story. Star Trek Generations is a must-watch for any fans of the franchise. It also marks the final on-screen appearance of James T. Kirk as portrayed so by far. none other than the man, the legend, William Shatner. So if you're looking for a great sci-fi adventure, look no further than Star Trek Generations. He'll be back. You wait. He, he might, be- but as of now, as of this recording... <laughs> Next tomorrow. He's, <laughs> I'm back, folks. We're doing a whole series. It's called Kirk on Netflix. <laughs> Probably could move better than Picard's moving in Picard, but let's not get into that. It's would at least break even, I think. Uh, Ryan, you are our very handsome judge. So what is your recommendation? My recommendation nah. is yet another recent release, Puss in Boots, The Last <laughs> Wish. Oh, that's I am what? generally Excellent. allergic to DreamWorks animation, especially Shrek-adjacent animation. But this was quite a surprise to me. The composition has a painterly quality that reminded me a lot of the graphic flourishes of Into the Spider-Verse. And I was greatly fond of the sheer volume of Hispanic representation on display. Bonus points for including Florence Pugh as Goldilocks. Pew, pew, pew. pew crew in full effect. Pew crew. Puss in Boots, The Last pew, Wish, pew, pew. is in theaters as of this recording, but it should be streaming on Peacock in the near future. Peacock! <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's got to be streaming on something already. It can't just be no, not the theaters. Yet. Not yet. Still just the okay, theaters. Okay, you're right. But <laughs> I'm conflicting information. Sweat. Uh, Big Ben, <laughs> what is your recommendation? My recommendation this week comes to me courtesy of friend of the podcast, Bobby Lapeer, and it also dives into the questions of artificial sentience, and that's 2013's The Machine. Now, before I start singing its praises out too much, I will acknowledge the movie's ambitions might have exceeded its budget a little bit, as it can look a little sci-fi channel at times. But you shouldn't let that deter you, because this flick is definitely underrated. In some ways, it feels like sort of a precursor to Ex Machina to me. Mm. Uh, The plot centers around a computer scientist, or several computer scientists, developing artificial intelligence uh, to use in the Second Cold War. And the sudden death of one leads her pre-mapped neural pathways to be created into a cyborg. The real star of this movie is Katie Lotz, a name you might recognize if you've watched any of the Arrowverse, and she absolutely steals the show in this film playing dual roles. Uh, Both her performance and the questions it dives into will be enough to keep you engaged. The Machine is currently streaming on Shudder or rentable for most online platforms. And it stars uh, Burt Kreischer, right? That uh, chubby stand-up comedian. I am the Machine. I am the Machine. Machine. Yeah, he says that a lot. Man, you're such a funny guy. Why don't you give us your recommendation? Wow, I'm not going to now. (laughs) All right, then we're all out of the show. All right, then we're all out of the show this week, folks. No, no, no. Just for that, everyone has to listen to it now. Ah. Uh, Recently, we had a guest of ours, Mr. Jack Bennett. One on Jack Bennett recommend the American remake of Solaris. So I figured this week I would recommend the Russian original from 1972. Uh, if after watching 2001 and 2010, you're still in the mood for slow, atmospheric sci-fi, this is a prime candidate. A psychologist is sent out to a space station orbiting a mysterious planet called Solaris, where the scientific where the scientists have been experiencing inexplicable and emotionally taxing hallucinations, or are they? Is the planet manifesting these phenomena as a form of torture for those it sees as intruders? Or is it more beneficent than that? Is it perhaps trying to placate them by fulfilling their deepest desires? It also explores it also explores the age-old question of what it is to be human and what it is to love. All that and more in just a little under three hours. Luckily, it moves at such a clip that it barely feels like two and a half. But (laughs) again, if you're in the mood for that, it scratches the itch. I personally love my sci-fi with a heavy dash of philosophy. Solaris 1972 is currently streaming on HBO Max. So hurry the hell up and watch it now before they pull it down and banish it to the Phantom Zone forever. See, weren't you happy you stuck around for my recommendation? I'd say it was the best one, except Robin's. 
Way better than Dylan's. Way better than Dylan's. I think we can all agree. Oh, no. Those are generations. Don't you agree, Wilson? Don't you agree? Uh, Ole! Exactly. Uh, With that, we are all at a show. But we want to thank our guest, uh, Robin Warder, for joining us. Thank you, Robin. Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. It's always fun discussing movies with you guys. Yeah, and it was we a love having you. And hopefully one day you'll cover uh, when Dylan murders me. Yes, it was Dylan. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> the trail went warm very quickly. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler the podcast for me, geez. Uh, and we hope everyone else will join us again as well as the reels of justice keep turning. Count it. Cell 9000. Please follow us on Twitter at Reels of Justice, Instagram Reels of Justice, and Facebook.com slash Reels of Justice.